We're going to be in Judges 10 this morning. As we move into <coughs> the 10th chapter of the book of Judges, we are uh, about halfway. There are 21 chapters. We're at chapter 10. And so this seems like a, a pretty good place for us to just pause and, and, and have a little refresher. You'll remember, of course, that the book of Judges is cyclical in nature. That is, we move through the same basic five-part cycle over and over again as we, as we walk through the book. So let's, let's review that five-part cycle, okay? Part one, the Israelites do evil in the sight of the Lord. And this usually comes in the form of idolatry. That's what's going to happen in this morning's text. Uh, number two, God hands Israel over to be conquered by their oppressors, okay? And that would be their enemies. We're going to see that in this morning's text as well. And this is a form of discipline. And then the third step is that Israel will cry out for help. Sometimes that cry is just feigned repentance. It's just sadness. Sometimes it's genuine. Step four is that God raises up a savior or a judge to deliver Israel from the hand of their enemy. And then step five, there is peace for a time in the land until Israel starts the cycle by doing evil all over again. Now we saw the cycle most recently in the life and ministry of Gideon in chapter six through eight. And then after the death of Gideon, at the end of chapter 8, we learned this. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. And then in chapter 9, we saw the fruit of their idolatry and the rise of a man named Abimelech, the wayward, illegitimate son of Gideon. Now there's an interesting contrast between chapter 9 that we looked at last week in chapter 10, which we're going to see this morning. In chapter 9, we saw God deliver his people from the evil hand of Abimelech, even though they did not cry out. And in this morning's text, in chapter 10, we're going to see Israel cry out for deliverance, only for God to tell them no. Can God do that? Is God allowed to say no to his people when they cry out for deliverance? Well, we're going to see for ourselves. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we cry out to you this morning, and we pray, I pray as the pastor of this church, that the hearts of all the members of this church see their desperate need for you to save them, that they, that they recognize that every second of every day they need you to uphold them, whether they're worshiping you, doing evangelism, or just tying their shoes, they need to know, God, that you are the one who is controlling all, who is sovereign over all. God, we pray that you would love us in a very particular way this morning. We pray that your word would come alive to us, that we would see you in a new way, a clear way. We pray that the gospel would be forceful to us this morning, that it would come down on our hearts in a new manner, that the, that the bottom would fall out for us as we consider your grace. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> when I was uh, 18 years old, 
the police found me right here in the city of Decatur, passed out in a, a running vehicle with a trunk full of stolen guns and a body full of narcotics. Now, seven years before that night, I smoked my first cigarette. I was 11 years old. I used my first drug at the age of 12. I was arrested for the first time at the age of 14. I sold drugs, joined a gang, and was incarcerated for the first time at the age of 15. I began carrying a gun at the age of 17, and I got my first felony, three in one, at the age of 18. When I was eight years old, just a little schoolboy, I won my school's spelling bee. At the age of 18, 10 years later, I was facing 20 to life in prison. How did that change come about? Winner of the spelling bee, passed out, high out of my mind, stolen drugs, uh, excuse me, stolen guns in the trunk of the car. Well, it didn't happen overnight. It was a gradual change. I went down a path. And you probably know this path because you've been down it yourself in one way or another. The path from good to okay to bad to worse. When the cops found me that night, I had nothing left. I had burned every bridge. I had narrowly escaped death too many times to count. I had no family, no friends, no money. And after that, no freedom. That night, I truly hit rock bottom. Now, in my first sermon in the book of Judges, I told us that we would see Israel spiral deeper and deeper into corruption and sin. And in this morning's text, we see Israel circling the drain. We see Israel riding the last leg of the spiral all the way down to their own rock bottom. They've gone on a gradual path from good to okay to bad to worse. Consider how bad things have gotten for Israel by looking at verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6. <coughs> the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, there are two details here in verse 6 that communicate the, the utter corruption, the absolute level of rock bottom to which Israel has arrived. And we'll consider them in turn, okay? The first detail is found in the list of seven false gods or groupings of false gods that Israel has come to worship. You have Baal, Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of Philistines. That's seven. Uh, you may know this, you may not, but in the Bible, the number seven is highly symbolic. In the Bible, God uses the number seven to represent the idea of completion. You see that in the days of creation. He creates for six days, he rests on the seventh, and it's done. In this morning's text, the fact that Israel has come to worship seven different groupings of false gods is intended to communicate the idea that Israel is completely given over to idolatry. Their apostasy is complete. 
Now, the second detail that communicates just how bad things have gotten for Israel that you can see right here in verse 6, it's a little difficult to see just by reading. You can really only see it with a map. The text says that the people have come to worship the gods of Sidon in the north, Aram in the east, and the Philistines in the south. Now, you'll remember that the, the, the nation of Israel, where it sits on the map, there is nothing to the west of it. The, to the west, there's only the Mediterranean Sea. So what you get if you, if you kind of plot these gods out is you see that they have given over to idolatry of the nations around them. They've given themselves over to every direction. It doesn't matter where you look, to the north, to the east, to the south, to the south, they are completely given over. This is really bad. And yet, it's not as bad as it can be. We will see that the worst is yet to come with the people of Israel. But here in Judges 10, we see that the cancer of idolatry, it is no longer located in just one specific body part. It has gone systemic. So in verse 6, we see part 1 of the five-part cycle. Israel does evil. Now, as we look at verse 7, we're going to see part 2 of the five-part cycle. God disciplines Israel. Look look at verse 7 with me. (coughs) In light of this idolatry, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. In verse 7, we see that God has sold Israel into the hands of two different oppressors, the nation of the Ammonites and the nation of the Philistines. Now, uh, Kim Riddlebacher, a commentator, he says that the reason why the narrator brings up these two nations in particular is to sort of prepare us for the next two judges. The next judge that we're going to see next week, if you're here, is Jephthah, and he's going to rescue Israel from the Ammonites. And then the judge after that is going to be Samson, and he's going to rescue Israel from the Philistines. That's just a little note for you to have in your Bible so you can understand what's coming. But before we get ahead of ourselves, while we're still here in chapter 10, I want us to take note of the very specific language that is used here in verse 7. The text says that God, in his anger, sold Israel into the hands of their enemies. Sold Israel into the hands of their enemies. This language of being sold, this is the language of slavery. Now, why would God, or why would this narrator, inspired by God, use this language? Why would he employ this metaphor to illustrate God's discipline? That they were sold to these nations. Well, it's because all throughout Scripture, God's people are pictured as God's slaves. To be more specific and use language that's less confusing with us in America because of our history of slavery, it might be more appropriate to say that They are pictured as God's debt slaves. That is, they are servants of God in light of what they owe God because of what God has done for them. Now, this is not the only picture that God uses to describe his people. He describes his people as his children. He describes Israel as his wife, often his unfaithful wife. He describes Israel as his priesthood. All of that's true. But he also calls them his debt slaves. So, for example, you can see in Isaiah 44... God says this, Return to me, for I have redeemed you. That is, I bought your debt, 
you belong to me, I own you, you're trying to escape my service through idolatry, come back to me. The language of redemption that's used here in Isaiah and in other places in Scripture, this is the language of purchase. So, why does God use this metaphor for his people, the the metaphor of debt slavery? This is the basic idea. We are all slaves, whether we know it or not. We're all slaves to someone or something, whether we recognize it or not. And all throughout Scripture, God's people are seen to be enslaved without God's help to one evil master or another. You can think about the nation of Israel as they were rotting away and suffering in Egypt. Their master there was Pharaoh. But as you read the rest of the Bible, you see that Pharaoh is sort of representative for the the larger master, which is the master of sin and Satan, various idols. And the story, the way this goes all throughout the Bible is that Israel becomes enslaved to Pharaoh, to the nations, to idols, to sin, to Satan. But then God, because he loves his people, he comes and he redeems them. He buys them from their cruel master and he brings them into his good and righteous service. And so you see this metaphorical language all throughout scripture. You see it in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. There it says this, speaking to the Christian, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. If anyone in this room is a Christian and they think that they are their own, they are wrong. We are the slaves of God. But in order to serve in God's house, the text says here that we had to be purchased. Well, purchased from who? Purchased from our evil masters, from the world, from sin, from Satan, from idols. Now here's the thing. In this comprehensive gospel metaphor, the concept of total freedom, this concept of complete independence from any ownership whatsoever, it just doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a human being who exists with complete independence. As Jonathan taught us this morning, the only person who exists with complete independence is God. But all human beings, because of our lowly nature, we are always belonging to someone or something. And so what we see in this morning's text is that we can either be in the service of Yahweh or we can be in the service of the idols. The the Apostle Peter, he understood this very well. Listen to the language he uses in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he's talking to God's people. He says, Live as people who are free. Okay, I'm tracking Peter. So there is some kind of freedom that we can have as God's people, okay? Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. So for the Apostle Peter, the freedom that we have as God's people is, well, not like any conception of freedom that we know of today. It's a freedom that says, I'm free because I belong to a good and righteous God. That's freedom. According to Scripture, true freedom is never to be utterly independent, as if that were even possible. Rather, true freedom is to serve a just and righteous master. Which, by the way, while I'm here, let me just throw this out. It's a reason why, politically speaking, I could never be a true libertarian. Libertarianism says, I just want to focus on freedom above all else. And it does so, it defines freedom in such a way that detaches you from your community 
from your constituency. But I digress. Come and talk to me more about that some other time. Now, let's take this theology of slavery, which I kind of I tried to like give you guys this little brief theology of slavery. And let's bring it back to Judges 10, okay? In this morning's passage, we see Israel, and they have been redeemed from the oppression of slavery, right? God has purchased them. He sent Moses. He, he rescued them from Pharaoh in Egypt, and they've been in the promised land. God has been loving them and serving them and taking care of them. And it's as if God is saying, what are you doing worshiping these idols? Do you want to go back to these wicked masters? Is that what you want, to these, these masters who oppressed you, who kept you in bondage? And God is at the point where he says, you know, okay, if this is what you want so bad, I'll draw up the bill of sale. This text shows us something that uh, may not always be as obvious to us as it should be. It shows us that idolatry always, always leads to oppression. Whether we realize we're oppressed or not. Whether we realize we're in chains or not. Think about what it feels like to be completely given over to an idol. You can pick the idol, okay? We all have our own idols. Think about food, sex, drugs, the idol of respectability, family, denomination, career, ministry. Think about what it might feel like to be completely given over to that God. Does it feel like freedom to not be able to go 24 hours without watching pornography? Do you feel free when you give in and call the drug dealer again, even though the last time you used it, you said it was killing you? Do you feel free when you find yourself pulling up in front of the liquor store again, even though last time you were puking in the toilet saying, I'll never do this again, this is terrible, and yet here you are? finding yourself at the cash register, bottle in hand. Do you feel like a free man when you sacrifice time with your family again for the sake of your career because you just cannot stop chasing earthly ambition? Just because we don't have shackles on our ankles does not mean that we are not enslaved. So, how does one escape this slavery? Well, this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. I was recently reading the autobiography of um, a, a black pastor in early America in the late 1700s. He had to purchase his freedom, and then he went on to be a traveling evangelist, and he did a lot of good things. But in order to purchase his freedom, he had to, after he got done with all of his master's tasks, he had to go work chopping hay and, and making bricks and doing all these terrible things so that he could save up his own meager funds over the course of years and years and years and years to have enough money to buy his freedom back from his master. That is not what we have to do, brothers and sisters. All we have to do is go hat in hand back to our master, truly repentant, and cry out to him and say, God, you were right. Your service was good. Your hand was righteous. Your justice was complete. Your service was good. 
The good news about this ability to go back is that our debt slavery, or rather, excuse me, the debt that we owe that has caused our slavery, it's already been purchased by God. It was purchased by God through Christ on the cross. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Ransom. He already paid the price that you owe God for your sins. And it says here that he gave himself as a ransom for all. So if you're sitting in this room and you're wondering, is it possible that Jesus paid the price for me because, you know, I'm pretty screwed up. There's nothing that you can say, there's nothing that you have done that would put you outside of the category of God being able to save you, of God desiring to save you. It doesn't matter if you're young or old or black or white or fat or skinny or smart or dumb or educated or ignorant. It doesn't matter if you're disabled or not. It doesn't matter if you're struggling with sins right now or not. If you are here and your heart is beating... Christ has paid the ransom to make it possible for you to come back into the good service of Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we cannot serve two masters. You can't be a slave in the household of two different owners. It doesn't work like that. You have to ask yourself, who will I serve? Am I going to serve God in money? No. I'm going to serve God or money. Sex and God, no. You have to choose. Family and God, Satan and God, idols and God, no. Which one is it going to be? You must decide today. Because friends, believe me, tomorrow is not promised. As for me and my house, we agree with Psalm 84. For a day in your courts, O God, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's move on to verses 8 and 9. Look there with me. <coughs> Speaking of the Ammonites and the Philistines, the text says, And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. At the beginning of chapter 10, we read this last week, we saw that after Abimelech, the Lord raised up two judges, Tola and Jair. How long did Israel have rest under the reign of Tola and Jair? We don't know. They it's not said, we're not told. But verse 8 tells us that Israel was under God's hand of discipline for their idolatry for 18 years. A little over six weeks ago, you guys know, I've told you, I ruptured a disc in my back. It was my fault. I'm a big old idiot. And as a result of my folly, I haven't been able to do many of the activities that I enjoy doing. You know, I'm a I'm a physical guy, and I haven't been able to do a lot of physical things. I've, I've been under a discipline of sorts for the last six weeks, handed down to me by my surgeon. Now, why, why did my surgeon choose six weeks? Why not four weeks? Why not eight weeks? Why not 16 weeks? 
Well, because according to his wisdom and knowledge, that's just how long it takes. Why did God choose 18 years of discipline for Israel and not 20 years or 10 years or 70 years as in their time in exile? Why 18? Well, I think the answer is as simple as because that's how long it takes according to the wisdom and knowledge of God. So that's the duration of Israel's discipline during this time, 18 years. But what about the intensity? Right? You remember when you were a kid and your mom and dad grounded you? And, you know, it, you're grounded for a week. Okay, the time matters. A, a week, a month, a year. It never lasts as long as they say it is. They say it's going to last. But what you really want to know isn't how long it's going to last, but you want to know the intensity of the grounding. Are you going to be grounded and like just have to like stare at a wall in the kitchen for a month? Or are you going to still have access to video games? It makes all the difference in the world. When it comes to this discipline from Yahweh to his people Israel, what's the intensity here? Do they still have access to video games? Is it that kind of discipline? Or is it going to be more like you're getting sent to Fort Leavenworth kind of discipline? You spend all day with a hammer breaking big rocks down into little rocks in the sun kind of discipline. Well, in verse 10, we see what appears... Oh, excuse me. In verse uh, 9, we see that uh, the text says that they were severely distressed. That's what this discipline was like. They were severely distressed. The Ammonites were wreaking havoc in the land. And the text doesn't elaborate and say what it is, but we have a pretty good idea Raiding parties coming down and stealing their crops, women being taken and other atrocities happening in that same vein, killings, robbery, theft, we could just go on and on. This was probably, uh, we can't even begin to think about it in our comfortable context today. But then, after 18 years, the loving discipline of God begins to bear fruit in the land of Israel. In verse 10, we see what appears to be the budding of repentance. Look there. Look at verse 10. (coughs) And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Here we have step three of the five-step cycle. Israel repents. If you were to go into my office, I have three or four commentaries on the book of Judges on my desk, and if you were to pick them up and and flip over to what they have to say about chapter 10, verse 10, you'd find that there is considerable debate about whether or not this repentance from Israel is is genuine. You know, are they real tears or are they crocodile tears? Now, whenever I find uh, commentators disagreeing about things like this, it always leads me to wonder, how can the same group of people who have studied this book for so long, years and years and years, these people who are experts, how can they arrive at differing conclusions? Well, as if you were to survey the, the books in my study, you'd find that there are three basic reasons why they disagree. First, there is the, the track record of Israel, right? What we see in this morning's text I mean, doesn't it just feel like the same song and dance, right? Israel sins, God comes and disciplines them, and then they cry out. And, you know, if that happens once, you're inclined to believe that the repentance is genuine. But when it happens ten times, 
And it seems to get worse after each time. You start to wonder, is this real? Is this repentance genuine or are they crocodile tears? The second reason is a more technical reason. I had a whole spiel in here. I was going to try to explain it to you, but I'm going to save you. It's kind of boring. It has to do with the word cried out, the verb cried out, Israel cried out. And yeah, we're just going to move on from that. The third reason why they disagree about this is largely owing to God's response to Israel, which takes us to verses 11 through 13. Let's, let's look at God's response, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> and the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? God's saying, guys, I've already done this. <laughs> I've already saved you from the Ammonites and the Philistines. And yet here we are again. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. What we have here, friends, is a picture of a God who is fed up. So fed up, in fact, that he says, I will save you no more. What does God mean when he says that? Like I asked you in, in the introduction, can God do that? Is he allowed to say, I'm not going to save you? I thought this was kind of God's thing, right? This is what he does. He has to save his people. Well, think about it like this, okay? What I see here is, it's, it's, it's almost as if God is arguing with his unfaithful wife, his serially unfaithful wife. And it's as if God is saying to her, look at everything that I've done for you. I've given you this big, beautiful ring. I've put up with your in-laws. I've put food on the table, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head. I've given you children, family, and community. And I've even forgiven you when you have been unfaithful to me on multiple occasions. I've been a good husband to you. I've loved you better than you've deserved. And this is how you treat me? It's, it's as if God is saying, you put all your trust in these other lovers and now you're coming back to me after the affair has blown up in your face? Not this time. This time is going to be different. Will God save Israel? It depends. Will Israel truly repent of her sins? Or will she simply feel bad for the consequences of her sins? Will she be sorry to God or will she be sorry for getting caught? Uh, kids, this is a good time for you to listen to me. If you're drawing something or playing with something, go ahead and put that down and just focus up here real quick, okay? Listen. You guys are master manipulators. As you get older, your mommy and daddy, if they love you, they will discipline you. Sometimes that'll be taking toys away. Sometimes it'll be spanking your bottoms. Whatever the case may be, your mom and dad are going to discipline you because they love you. And what you're going to learn as you get older is that your mommy and daddy, because they love you so much, they have a soft spot in their heart for you. And they don't like to see you cry. And they don't want to see you sad. And you may be tempted to use that to manipulate your mom and dad. What do I mean by that? You, you may learn that if you cry hard enough or long enough or make just the right face, maybe your mommy and daddy won't discipline you. 
But here's what you need to know. God is not like your mommy and daddy. You know, sometimes you can cry and your mom won't spank you, but God is never going to be like that. You know, your mom may think, oh, he's definitely sorry, even though in your heart you're saying, I'm not sorry at all and I'll do it again. But see, God, he sees past the water coming down our cheeks. He sees past the look on our faces. He can't be fooled by the words of our mouths. God knows our hearts. So I would encourage you not to be in the habit of trying to make your mommy and daddy think that you're sorry when you're not because it'll lead you to think that maybe you can make God think you're sorry even if you're not. And it's not going to work. Good job, guys. Thanks for paying attention. One commentator says it like this. Dale Ralph Davis, he says, There is a significant difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. So which one is it? Is Israel the penitent prodigal or the prodigious whore? It might be useful for us to shift metaphors here for a moment. Think about a father and a mother who are constantly bailing their wayward child out of the consequences of his sin. It could manifest itself in a thousand different ways. I'll just run through some of the most common. Paying off debt for the child. Giving them money when they've been irresponsible with their own money. Letting them bring drugs into the house. Paying for them to go to rehab over and over again. Allowing them to bring toxic women and men, their partners, into the home and into the family and acting like it's normal and okay for them to be there. Paying for things that the child has stolen or broken. And even bailing the child out of jail instead of letting them learn the consequences of their sins. Eventually, if these parents are good parents, they will have to say, enough is enough. A good parent will not be a perpetually enabling parent. Eventually, the parent has to say, I need evidence that there is some kind of real change in you before I can give you this money again, before I can open up my home to you again, before I can make another call to try to bail you out of trouble again. I need some kind of evidence that these tears that you're giving me right now are real. And if a parent doesn't do that, they're enabling their child in their sin. It may feel loving, it is not loving. This is what God is doing with Israel. He refuses to enable Israel in his sin. He says, what I need from you is real repentance. Now, let's consider some application on this point. As Christians, we sometimes feel like the only right thing to do when we have been sinned against is to give immediate grace. That's not exactly right. It's not really biblical. Now, I want to be clear. Christians should never be miserly with grace. If we have good reason to believe that a person has repented, we should give out an abundance of grace and we should do it as quickly as possible. Having said that, this reality of gospel grace does not eliminate the need for discernment in the administration of grace. So let's do another thought experiment. Consider a wife whose husband has been serially unfaithful. Now let's say after the third transgression from the husband, he comes home 
And once again, he begs for his wife's forgiveness. Oh, he's laying it on thick. Oh, baby, it's you. It's always been you. She doesn't mean anything to me. None of them mean anything to me. You're the whatever. He begs her to take him back. Now, in this situation, would we say that the only appropriate response for this woman, if she's a Christian, is to immediately receive him back into the home? No. We would counsel her to take great care in her administration of grace. We would tell her to be very, very, very slow to receive him back into the home. We would say that she should look for clear and discernible evidences that his repentance is genuine, which could take a very long time. You know, this is true in the local church as well. It's not uncommon for pastors to experience exactly what we see with Israel. You know, member sins, they get caught in their sin, they, they cry, they confess. We say, oh, love you, forgive you, God's grace. There it is, you know, let's, we'll, we'll move on and we'll fix this and we'll try harder next time and, and uh, yeah. And it's not uncommon for pastors to get caught up in this cycle with individuals or with families where they just do the same thing over and over again and pretty soon you begin to wonder, are these, tears, are these tears real? Are you really repentant? Because if you were really repentant, we'd expect some kind of progress. We begin to ask, are you just presuming upon the grace of God? Are you just sinning and going, oh, they'll forgive me? Just going and doing whatever and going, oh, God's grace. In the book of Acts, the apostle Peter, he says to a man named Simon, he says, you must repent of your wickedness. But listen to the language he uses. This is biblical language. He says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. If possible? I thought forgiveness was always possible. It is for those who are truly repentant. It is entirely reasonable for us, friends, to wisely administer grace. And at times, to say to someone, I will forgive you if it's possible. And if they say to you in that moment, what do you mean, is it possible? You can say, I will forgive you if you truly repent. You have to remember that although grace is always unmerited, it is never unconditional. It is always conditioned upon repentance. So, what are we to make of all this? Is Israel's repentance genuine? Well, let's look at verses 15 and 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them. And serve the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So I'm going to tell you at the outset, I do believe that this is true repentance. And I'd like us to spend the rest of our time together examining this to kind of dissect the anatomy of true repentance. I think in this text we see four marks of true repentance. I'm not saying these are the only four marks of true repentance. I'm saying in this text we see four marks of true repentance. 
So let's consider them together. The first mark is the mark of genuine, uh, excuse me, is the mark of awareness. Awareness. In verse 15, Israel says that she has sinned. We have sinned. That should blow you away. It's kind of, it doesn't really land, does it? It doesn't really knock you for a loop. But it's amazing. This is an echo of what she has already said in verse 10, right? Verse 10, we have sinned and forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now, there are three aspects of an awareness of sin that I want us to highlight here. And yeah, this is going to be one of those things where like the point has three subpoints and that subpoint has three subpoints. If you don't get all of it, that's fine. Just try to track to the track with what I'm saying, okay? Even if you don't get it in your notes. But the three aspects of awareness that I want us to see when we sin is an awareness that we have sinned, an awareness of how we have sinned, and an awareness of the one against whom we have sinned. So, an awareness that we have sinned. Israel here in this text, by God's grace, they've come to see the real issue. It's not the Amorites. It's not the Ammonites. It's not the Philistines. It's their own sinful idolatry that has put them in this position. This reminds me of my own salvation, also after 18 years of suffering. I remember that before God saved me, I would just blame everyone. I would blame everyone. I was preaching in the jail on Monday night. I had two guys come up and talk to me afterwards. Man, they weren't going to accept that anything in their life was their fault. It was crazy. We spent 10 minutes, and I just kept saying, yeah, but what have you done? And they were like, no, 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 the system. Yeah, but what about you? No, 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 my mom or my dad who wasn't there. And I was telling them, like, dude, I get it. My mom, drug addict, dad, not there. Poverty, yes, it's hard. But when I got saved, God helped me to see that even though all those things were true, at the end of the day, at the very bottom of it all, the thing that was killing me was me. It was my sin. And so this leads me to ask you this morning, what are you wrestling with? What are you going through in your life? What pain are you experiencing that could be a result of your lack of a spiritual self-awareness? I wonder in what way you might need to be honest with yourself this morning. What thing may be going on with you where you finally just need to say, you know what, it's not my parents' fault. It's not my wife's fault. It's not my husband's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not my boss's fault. It's not racism's fault. It's not patriarchy's fault. It's my fault. I'm going through this because I am a sinner. The second aspect of awareness is the awareness of how we have sinned. This one's going to be kind of short. Think about sin kind of like drunkenness. It leaves your vision hazy. And sometimes when our sin is exposed to us, we're just so drunk with sin that we can't really see it for what it is. But Israel seems to be able to see its own sin very clearly in this text. They recognize that what they have done is not an oopsie-daisy, but rather an offense. They say, we have forsaken our God. How have they sinned? Not just by like forgetting to put the check in the mail, you know. They have sinned by forsaking their God. Which leads me to the third aspect of our awareness of sin. It's an awareness of the one against whom we have sinned. Listen to the language that Israel uses here. It says, we have sinned against you. 
All sin affects three parties, respectively. Let's look at those three. And then we're going to get to God. But the first party that's affected is you. Your sin always affects you. And it affects you in various ways. It damages your relationship with God. It can do damage to your physical body. Yeah, you're not out there, you know, doing meth in the streets. But if you think that pint of Ben and Jerry's every night is doing your heart any favors, you're wrong. Not that I would know anything about that. Sin can do damage to your body. It can rob you of your emotional health. It can do all kinds of things to you. The second party that's always affected by sin is your neighbor. Your sin always affects other people, whether you realize it or not. You think, ah, but what about committing suicide? That doesn't hurt anybody but me. No, the people you leave behind. It affects them. Watching porn alone in the dark, that doesn't hurt anybody, right? That's the classic libertarian line, going back to that again, right? I just want to be left alone and do what I want to do and not hurt anybody. And the the underlying uh, assumption here is that I can do things that don't affect other people, and that's just not true. Take watching porn for an example. Yes, it does hurt other people. It supports a system of sex trafficking. It hurts people that are going to come into your life that you may not even know about. If you're a young single man in this room, you should know that if you're watching porn in secret and you think it's not going to bother anybody or affect anybody, one day when you get married, it will affect your wife. We can go on. Finally, the most important uh, person that your sin affects is God. All sin is horizontal and vertical in nature. Okay? You always affect other people, but the worst offense of your sin is always an offense against God. Remember, the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love neighbor. And so the best way that you can love God and love neighbor is by repenting to them respectively. That is, God is the most supremely offended party by your sin. Therefore, you should always repent to him first, then your neighbor. So, in Israel's repentance, we see an awareness that they have sinned, an awareness of how they have sinned, and an awareness against whom they have sinned. You know, it's not uncommon for me uh, when I'm talking to my kids, or maybe even Amber, and we've had a fight, and there's some repentance taking place. I just like to ask questions, because it's so easy to just say, you know, I'm sorry. Okay, that's good, and if it's, if it's true that you really are sorry, it's even better. But sometimes... It's good to ask, sorry for what? Do you understand what you did? Do you understand the way that you sinned? Well, it's, it's apparent here that Israel is able to do that to some extent by God's grace. Now, the second mark of genuine, genuine repentance is acceptance. This is an acceptance of discipline. What we see here in chapter 10 is that after Israel admits her sin, the next thing she says is, Do whatever seems good to you. This demonstrates an acceptance of the consequences of sin. True repentance will always agree with the author of Hebrews. In chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. True repentance desires holiness more than comfort. True repentance always has the eyes of faith to see the need for temporary pain for the sake of eternal comfort. We live in an age where we are seeing a lot of 
pastors when they fall. It's, it's broadcast publicly, right? Pastors have always fallen. They've always shipwrecked their faith, faith ruined their ministry. That's just pastors are humans, and humans are going to fail. But we live in an age where whenever a pastor fails now, if he has any kind of a platform, any kind of a following, his failure is broadcast. It's on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. It's on blog posts. People are doing videos and podcasts about it. They're dissecting it. They're trying to understand what went wrong. And all too often what we see in, in these uh, very public failings is we see pastors unwilling to accept the loving discipline of God. We hear about pastors saying something like this. Yes, I messed up, but don't you think this is a bit much? And we usually find that, that these pastors, after a very short while, uh, if they, hopefully at, at the beginning, if they submit to discipline, what we see is they very often get tired of it, like fast. You were the big guy. You were in charge. You had the gifts. You had the platform. Now you've messed up. You're under the discipline of the church. And you're willing to submit to it for a while. But then, after five months, six months, ten months, a year, they get fed up. And they go, no, God needs to use me again. And they go out and they start their own ministry. Or they go, they get hired at a different church that doesn't care about how they've messed up. Or they go and they start their own church. True discipline says, God, do what seems best. Just save me from my sin. These fallen pastors and, and others like them who are not pastors, they, they can't say that. They say, I'm going to do what I think is best. I can save myself from my own sin. At Sixth Avenue, we've had six cases of church discipline that have gone all the way to excommunication. And uh, as I was thinking about this text this week, it, it hit me really in a painful way that not one of these excommunicated members has demonstrated the kind of repentance that we see here from Israel. Not one of them has said, you know, just do what seems best. You know, my, my own idiot thinking is what got me in this position in the first place. I can't trust myself. But you have a track record of loving me and caring for me and holding me accountable. And when I've been a member of the church, I've flourished and good things have happened to my life because God has used it to channel his grace to me. So I don't trust myself. I'll trust God working through the church. Hasn't happened once. For the Christian, excommunication is rock bottom. It is meant, it's designed by God it's in the Word. I didn't invent this. Baptist theologians a hundred years didn't invent this. God invented it to bring us to the end of ourselves. In excommunication, God puts us out into the world and says, don't you see how terribly oppressive this is? In Judges 10, God hands his people over to the Ammonites and to the Philistines, and they suffer under that oppression, and then they wake up. With excommunication, we put people out of the church hand them over to the gods of the nations with the hopes that they'll go, this is terrible. I would much rather be a servant in the house of God. We hope that they'll come back and they'll say, we have sinned. Do whatever seems good to you. It took Israel 18 years 
under the hand of the Ammonites, under the hand of the Philistines, 18 years to, to rise up, to, to, to wake up from their spiritual slumber. So brothers and sisters, as you think about our church and the members who have been excommunicated, I want to encourage you to pray for them. I've only been the pastor of this church for four and a half years now. And you know, they've been disciplined at various points. There's still plenty of time for them to come to their senses, to accept their sins and the consequences of their sins and come back home to Jesus. Let's keep them lifted up in prayer. The third mark of genuine repentance is desperation. What we see in this text is that the people of Israel, they cry out to God for immediate deliverance. They say, only deliver us this day. It's as if they're saying, we've been given over to our sins and the consequences of our sins for 18 years. We can't take another second of this. Come, Lord, rescue us without delay. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever thought or said, no matter what happens, I cannot go another second of another day living like this or I will die? Maybe you felt that way about a job, right? I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. I'm not going in and dealing with that man again tomorrow. Maybe you felt this way about a relationship, toxic relationship, you can't get out of it, you say, I cannot go another second like this. But have you ever felt that way about your sin? Have you ever felt the weight of conviction come bearing down on you with such force that you feel like no matter what happens, you need to be delivered from it right now? I've found that in my own life, I can gauge whether my repentance is genuine or shallow by how quickly and severely I'm willing to put my sin to death. So let me show you what shallow repentance usually sounds like. Just one more time. Or maybe when you're done, that was the last time. And then you do it again, right? Or maybe it sounds like, I'll stop X, Y, Z, next week for sure. Or I'll start XYZ tomorrow. That's the plan. Tomorrow. It's going to happen. And you know when we say that, we sound as dumb as the people who are eating donuts on Sunday night saying, the, the diet starts tomorrow morning. Shallow repentance treats the mortification of sin like a chore that can just be put off to a later date. Babe, can you take the Christmas tree down? Yeah, I can do that next week. Amber's been trying to get me to put our Christmas decorations up in the attic for like, since Christmas. Yes, honey, I'll do it next week. Yes, Lord, I'll start being more generous on the next paycheck. Of course, God, I'll get around to putting that porn protection software on my phone when I get a chance. Yes, God, I'll start loving my wife better. When, how? I'm not sure, but I'll figure it out. True repentance brings with it a kind of desperate immediacy that says, even if everything else burns down around me today, I cannot go another second in my sin. I'm going to call a brother or sister from the church and I'm going to confess. I'm going to make an appointment with one of my elders and develop a plan so that I can fight this thing. I'm going to get down on my knees, or better yet, lay down on my face and cry out to my God to save me right 
now. The fourth and final mark of genuine repentance is destruction. We read in verse 16 that the people of Israel put away the foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord. Two things I want you to see here. The first is this language of put away. Uh, that could be a little misleading. It's, it's one of two phrases that I think it feels kind of clunky in English. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But it's, a, it's an idiom. It basically means they destroy their idols. Okay? So I don't know what you're doing with the idols in your life right now. I don't know if you're like coddling them, entertaining them. But if you're doing anything other than trying to assault them and destroy them, you're not doing enough. The second thing I want us to see here is the dual nature of Israel's repentance. The text says that they not only put their idols away, but that they also turned to Yahweh. This is what genuine repentance looks like. We never merely turn from sin. Whenever we turn away from something, we must always turn to something. And the text says that they turned away from idols to God. This was the very first thing that Jesus commanded his people to do when he came to earth. His very first proclamation sounds like this. Listen. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repenting, turning away from sin, belief, trusting in God and all of his good promises. When I was a recovering addict, I was always told that you just can't walk away from your addiction. You have to replace it with something, which is why I went to like a thousand meetings, you know. And I'm not saying those are bad, but that was one way to try to replace it. You know, you replace it with, with meetings. And in, in large part, this is true. This is why if you've ever seen anybody quit smoking cigarettes before, they usually get kind of chubby afterwards because a lot of people who quit smoking, they replace their cigarettes with sugar, you know. They, they eat a lot of sweets. But this principle is just, it's true of all sin and idolatry. We cannot simply put our idols away and think we've done enough. Uh, Scientists and people smarter than me, they say that nature abhors a vacuum. It will always fill the void with something else. And the same thing is true of your heart. Your heart abhors a spiritual vacuum. You put one idol away today, and it will be replaced by another idol tomorrow. The only way to keep yourself from being on this perpetual idolatry merry-go-round is to replace your idol with the worship of God. The way out of idol worship is not no worship. It's right worship, proper worship. Friends, I hope you understand that we live in a very dark world and idols all around us, in the midst of us. We can't avoid that. We can't kill them all. It's just impossible for us to do away with this fact. We live amongst idols. And we will, and when I say we, I'm not using the royal we. I mean me, you, every one of us in this room. We will find ourselves bound up with idols. We will, at various points in our lives, find ourselves tangled up in some kind of idolatry. The question for the Christian is not, will I get bound up with idolatry? The question is, will I give myself over to idolatry? Which is why in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us what to do when we come into contact with idols and how we ought to put them to death. Listen to what he says. He uses the language of put off and put on. 
right? Turn away from idols, turn to Yahweh. Repent and believe. Put off, put on. Paul says this to brand new Christians. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up. What does it look like to be an unbeliever? What's one of the marks of not belonging to God? It's that you give yourself up. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity and idolatry. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and to be renewed in the, spirits of your mind, in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The difference between us as Christians and unbelievers is not that we never get tangled up with idolatry. The difference is, is whether or not we will put off those idols, that old way of life, the way that we thought, the way that we acted, the way we spent our money, the way we used our bodies, and will we put on the right way, the way of Christ that we have learned in the gospel. Now, I want us to consider one more thing before we move on from this final point. Uh, I, I want us to understand that it is possible for you to be under the disciplining hand of God and not be under the discipline of the church. It is possible for you to be a member in good standing at this church and yet be under the disciplined hand of God. How can that be? Well, it's because the church is an organization of human beings. We are not all seeing. We are not all knowing. We are not the eye in the sky. This is not a cult. I don't track you guys on the internet to try to find out what you're doing every second of every day. It is entirely possible for you to decorate and hide your idols from me, from the elders of this church, from your other church members. One very famous minister, Ravi Zacharias, spent decades doing evangelism. When he died, it came to light that, in fact, he was in deep, deep, dark sexual sin. He was able to hide his idols. But just because you may be able to hide your idols from me and from this church doesn't mean you can hide them from God. You may be in right standing with, with us, with me, but you may not be in right standing with God. I think it's safe anytime we come to something like this because we live in the Bible Belt, because we live in a land where everyone thinks that they're just naturally okay with God, for you to understand that you could be self-deceived. Moving on. In closing, let's look at the end of verse 16. We looked at it, but I want us to look at it again. Just at the end there. <coughs> it says, And he, and the he there is God, became impatient over the misery of Israel. Speaking of somebody getting impatient. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? He became impatient. Well, I think, this is, uh, I think this is probably an overly literal translation. One of the things that the ESV, the English Standard Version, does is it tries to translate the text literally. And sometimes they can translate it so literally that it just feels clunky in English. So to be impatient to do something, it was a Hebrew idiom. It, 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 the, the heart of what God's really saying here, I think in, the NIV gets it better in the English. 
It, it translates it like this. It says, God could bear Israel's misery no longer. God disciplined them. They were hurting in their repentance, and he could bear their misery no longer. He was eager to heal them. Think about it like this. God is like a father who, with his son Israel, has administered very tough but very fair discipline. Now, this son who's been under this discipline has been humbled and brought low, and so the son comes to the father in tears. Now, what does the father do? The first thing he does is he examines the tears. He's a dad. He's been through this a thousand times. He can tell the difference between genuine contrition and crocodile tears for the most part. And the father in this situation recognizes that the son has truly recognized the error of his ways. That the son has truly been made miserable by his sin and the consequences of his sin. And in this moment, the good father will be eager to restore his son. Dads, if you're in this room and you've disciplined your children and your children come to you and you can see that they're really sorry for what they've done and you don't relent, you're being a bad dad. God didn't make you wait just a little bit longer after you repented. He was quick to administer grace when he sees that the repentance is genuine. It seems as if God sees Israel here as his son, truly broken over his sin. And he says, I've got to heal you now. I am impatient to reconcile our relationship, to restore you in love. And so, in the coming chapters, we're going to see God implement part four of the five-part cycle. He's going to raise up a judge. Two judges coming next to deliver Israel. First, Jephthah, to rescue Israel from the hand of the Ammonites. And then Samson, to rescue Israel from the Philistines. In just a moment, we're going to sing uh, what a lot of people think is a Christmas song. It's like one of like 15 Christmas songs that really shouldn't be a, a Christmas song. It's just a good, true, beautiful thing for us to sing together. So we are, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I want you to pay attention to the lyrics here. The lyrics go like this, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And as you know, Emmanuel means God with us. So come, come be with us, God, and ransom, buy back, pay off the debt captive Israel. Israel has been enslaved. They've been debt slaves to the gods of the nations. And so the writer says, come God, buy us back. Then he goes on, Israel mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee O Israel. Friends, this cycle in the book of Judges, it continues even to our day. But the, the very good news of this book is that we're not waiting for a Jephthah. We're not ra- waiting for a Samson or any other fallen judge to come save us. The good news is that God has already come. The Israelites were waiting for a Savior. We have received a Savior. And he's the very best savior. And he has come to ransom us. He already has. We are no longer in lonely exile. We're now sort of in the waiting room, waiting for God to call us all the way home. And if you think that he will, I hope that you are able to rejoice with us as we sing. Let me pray. Father, sometimes it's so hard to 
rejoice, even as we're in this fallen world still affected by sin. We pray that as we sing this song to you, that our hearts will rejoice with a heavy joy, a joy that recognizes the weight of evil still bearing down on us, but also longing, desperately, hopefully, confidently longing for the day of final redemption. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.